Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by writer and director David Lowery, the man behind such films as Ain't Them Body Saints, Pete's Dragon, A Ghost Story, and The Old Man and the Gun. Hi, David. Hey, how's it going? Very good, thank you. Thank you for dialing in today. I love talking about running times. Good, that's good. This is the this is the podcast for you. Now, I was looking at your filmography before we started this recording, and you have made an under ninety minute film, an under ninety minute feature. Is it the old man, the gun? Your very first one. Oh, Saint Nick. What is that like? Eighty six. According to the internet, it's like yeah, eighty, eighty eight, eighty nine. I, you know. My goal with The Old Man the Gun was to make an 80-minute movie, and I failed. But it's without the credits. If you take the credits off, I think it's under 80. And I was very excited about that. I really wanted that movie to hit the 80. I had two goals. I wanted the movie to be rated G, and I wanted it to be 80 minutes, and I failed both of those things. But but still, it's pretty short. It's pretty pretty darn short. Yes, a lot of your films are just over 90 minutes long, I've, I, I discovered. Like A Ghost Story, Saints, Old Man and the Gun. They're all sort of just hovering just above 90 with the, with the credits. I bet if you took the credits off of them, all of those would be under 90. Because I think they're all like, like I, I can't remember how long they are at this point. Like I haven't seen Ain't the Body Saints since it came out uh, or before it came out. But I'm guessing that's like 93 minutes in yeah. that zone. And Ghost Story is probably 93, something like that. Which is really satisfying. Although I do, I do wish Ain't the Body Saints was actually longer. I have I, I have weird relationships with time in my movies, and and sometimes I cut them too short because I get worried that people will get bored. And I think with Ain't the Body Saints, I cut that one a little too short. I should have just let it be more boring. Just some great inserts of some static uh, sort of scenery. That'd be really. We nice. certainly shot. We shot a lot of those. <laughs> 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 like I shot a much more boring movie in a boring in a good way, I should say. But I, I shot a much slower, more contemplative film. And I cut it to the quick, uh, which is good in some ways, but I do I do wish it you know had room to to breathe. But at the same time, I got it, that running time with an all important nine in front of it, and uh, and that's really important to me as well. You're preaching to the choir here. Your most recent film, The Green Knight, was one of the many films delayed because of COVID and and everything. Uh, what's it like, sort of sitting on this film that's sort of out there? You know, you've got the posters out there, the trailers out there. A lot of people are thirsting after hot Dev Patel. Yeah, but we can't see the film yet. It's really interesting because I I have a very like a very interesting relationship with my movies when they're done, which is that I finish them, I never look at them again. I always say like they don't belong to me anymore; they belong to the audience or they belong to the world. So I try to like, you know, free myself of the possessive aspects. Like this is one of my children, or this is my piece of work. I try to let go of that as quickly as I can when I finish a movie. And this is the first time where I've had to do that with all also knowing that, you know, that no one's seen it. Like it's just letting it exist. It, it exists unto itself. And so I've let go of it, but no one else has seen it. I think it's a valuable process to go through. I've, I've kind of, I appreciate it. I will say, of course, also that by virtue of not having to release the movie in May, I completely recut it uh, over the summer because <laughs> I just couldn't resist it. You know, we never finished it. We never we never like delivered the movie. So I was like able to just keep tweaking it and tweaking it until finally in October or November, when we had to finally put our pencils down, we were we were 
you know, we delivered it. And so now it's done and it's sitting on a shelf, but I did get to, uh, I did get to keep working on it. And one of the things that happened, unfortunately, was that the running time grew into a zone that if I were to look at the movie on Netflix or Apple TV or wherever people will ultimately probably see it the most, even though I do hope it plays in cinemas this summer and saw the running time, which is 126 minutes, I, I would just feel a little sadness because that's one of my least favorite running times. I also know that every movie has, you know, you know, a, a good movie will be as long as it needs to be. And and this movie, we got it to where I think it needs to be. But on a very base level, when I'm, you know, sitting down on a, you know, after a long work day to watch a movie and I see a movie that can't quite commit to being two hours and, and pushes past it a little further, I'm always like, oh, it's a little too long for tonight, which is a terrible thing to do. I always say that I my favorite movies are, you know, 90 minutes or less or uh, three hours or longer. And uh, that, that, middling two hour plus ground i always am sort of a little disenchanted with in spite of now having made a movie that fits squarely within it yeah you're right i love i love the extremes i love those short you know sub 90 sub 80 beautiful and i also love the four hour plus you know what an epic i mean i love going to the cinema to see something that is longer than four hours and i've seen like bellatar's satan thing go twice in movie theater in the theater and, and that's both times have it's been a you know, formative experience for me. And I love just sitting down and making that commitment and just knowing that I'm going to be in a world for longer than I normally would be. And that is, that is one of my favorite movie going experiences. And on the flip side, I love just being able to dip into something and knowing that within 90 minutes or less, I'm going to have a complete story and be, you know, go on a complete journey and that it will ultimately be a very short period of my lifetime that I spend there, but it will feel full and complete. And that's really exciting too. That's the sign of their success, isn't it? Like you've taken someone on an emotional journey and they come out feeling like they've had that experience. And then they look at their watch and they go, oh, wow, that was less than 90 minutes. And it's, it's just a, it's, it's a, it's a indicative of how malleable time is when you're telling a good story and how, you know, you look at Satan Tango, for example, and there are hours of that film, all seven hours of it, but there's, there's hours within that seven hours that, you know, not a lot technically happens in terms of the story. And yet so much is going on that every moment is full and rich and, and, and you could just, you know, you could easily make a 14 hour version of that movie that's probably just as good. But the flip side of that is when you have like this incredibly almost exhausting emotional experience all crammed into like 88 minutes, 89 minutes. And that's really wonderful in its own right. So for this podcast, when I reached out to you and said, you know, uh, David, we'd like to come on. Can you pick one under 90 minute movie? How did you approach the uh, that challenge? What went through your head? Well, I thought of a lot of my favorite movies and then went and looked and saw that they were all just over 90 minutes or more often like in the hour, one, the one hour 40 mark. And I certainly, you know, instantly thought about Fantastic Mr. Fox, which unfortunately had already been selected. And it was really funny to think about how many movies that I kind of like think in my head are about 90 minutes were really more like 145 or 144. Like I was like, I was like, oh, I can talk about The Fountain, but no, that's that's an hour and 40 minutes. And there's so many movies I, I think about as being short or un, or surprisingly short that are actually just over 90. And so it took me a while to to sort of like, you know, really settle on something. There are there were a lot of like, you know, easier choices that I could have made, but Ultimately, I wanted to talk about something that had sort of just been simmering in, in my mind for a little while, partially because I'm working on a science fiction film uh, or writing a science fiction film, and that's uh, Fantastic Planet.
Fantastic Planet tells the story of Oms, human-like creatures kept as domesticated pets by an alien race of blue giants called Trags. The story takes place on the Trags planet of Garm, where we follow our narrator, an Om called Ter, from infancy to adulthood. He manages to escape enslavement from a Trag learning device used to educate the savage Oms and begins to organise an Om revolt. The imagination invested in the surreal creatures, music and sound design and eerie landscapes is immense and unforgettable. It's got a lot of, you know, silly words in there, but the story is pretty simple. There's a quote that I found, like Gene Siskel reviewed it. He wrote that it's an animated piece of science fiction pretending to be a meaningful statement. And according to publicists for the film, the visuals and story begin to make sense if your mind is chemically altered. I doubt it. And he gave it one and a half stars. Wow. And I was like, that's just, that's just, you know, kind of what a fuddy-duddy response. Like this story makes perfect sense without mind-altering chemicals. Although I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, when you watch the movie and listen to that soundtrack, you think like, oh yeah, that literally the characters in the movie are all like dropping acid basically. So I, I'm sure that was part of the intention, but it's a, it's a pretty classic tale, a, a pretty classic allegory. And it's broad enough that you can sort of apply any sort of narrative of oppression to it and, and get that sort of mel- metaphorical value out of it, whether it's like civil rights or animal rights, any sort of story where one species or one part of civilization is being oppressed by another. And, and it doesn't really shake the boat on a narrative sense, but where it does do by being so simple is r- provide a template for all sorts of just really amazing, fantastical detail. And that's what that's what I really love about this movie. It really feels like a well-thought-out world, well-thought-out alien civilization. It's like, you know, I love science fiction films that take place in worlds with like well-thought-out taxonomies where you just sort of like understand the way in which the world works on a very organic level and where they feel com- complete. Uh, and this is certainly one of those. 100% agree with you there. So this is an animated movie, originally released in 1973, directed by René LaRue. It won the Grand Prix at the Cannes Film Festival and 72 minutes long. An excellent runtime, the second shortest feature in the festival so far. Perfect, perfect. I'm glad that I could provide that. And I think you're right, you know, regarding the story, you know, this is from 1972, but it feels relevant today because there's always, you know, a story of oppression or, you know, something going on that you can relate it to, which is kind of what a lot of good sci-fi films do. So it's quite fun sort of reading all the theories around it online and it just depends when you watch it and who you are whilst you're watching it. Yeah, it's 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 quite evergreen in that way. And and I'm sure there, you know, I feel like there's a Twilight Zone episode or an Outer Limits episode where humans are in a zoo on another planet. It does something I really love. A lot of you know, a lot of movies, especially a lot of 90-minute movies do, which is they don't surprise you with the story. The story follows the beats that you expect it to take, but the way in which it applies itself, the way in which it follows that narrative arc has a lot of surprises in it. And and that is really, you know, that that's the type of storytelling I love. I love I love knowing where the where a movie's headed. I love knowing what is in store for me on a narrative level so I can focus on other things like the design, the creatures, the world itself, and also just sort of like the crazy, like little details they put in here, like, you know, the the, the whole meditation thing, the idea that, again, this movie is 1973, and it was probably like being produced, you know, they were probably making it at some point in the late 60s. So you really have like that countercultural vibe to it. And there's a lot of, a lot of free love going on in this movie. And when you get to the ending, when they get to the, to the titular fantastic planet and find out that what's going on there is that the, the drugs, the drags, the, the large blue aliens are 
meditating their way to another planet to, uh, as the film puts it, um, hold strange nuptial rites with other species. It shows them dancing, but you kind of get the sense that what they're implying there is that they go there to get it on. And that's a, that's pretty funny. Do you remember when you first watched this film, David? I think it was two or three years ago. I'd, I'd known about it for a long time. Like the imagery of just the large blue alien with the red eyes was something I've been aware of for I don't know how long. Cause, and the movie's been on the Criterion Collection for, for a number of years. And, I'm, and I think just that imagery is probably just floated around uh, my periphery for a while, but I didn't see it until two or three years ago, maybe maybe four years ago, I can't remember which, but it was a repertory screening at the Texas Theater in Dallas that showed, a, they showed a 35 millimeter print of it. And I remember sitting down to watch it and just being, you know, having that sort of like mind blowing experience of seeing something that you feel like you should have seen years ago and maybe did in a way, but you're seeing it for the first time. And it just fit, my range of interests you know the things that i'm excited about uh some of which i've talked about already but just it was like it was, it was like this movie is something i've been waiting to see and now i'm finally seeing it and i didn't know i was waiting to see it so it really just it really excited me i loved the style of it i loved the animation and it fit right into the type of science fiction that i'm really interested in seeing it in a cinema that sounds like such a treat as well because this is a it's a gorgeous film and the soundtrack is one of its best features as well. And, and to hear that music in surround sound must have been a, a lot of fun. Definitely. I mean, the, the music is so of that era. You know, it's got that sort of Pink Floyd vibe. And it, you know, reminds me of, you know, that Jodorowsky was doing Dune sort of probably around the same time. And this is sort of what that movie, if he had made his Dune, would have been kind of like this, I think. You've got that, this wasn't designed by Mobius, the French artist, but um, the director, René Leloup, his next film was. And certainly that sort of French science fiction style is, you recognize it immediately in, in this, the, the things you would have seen in, in, in French graphic novels like uh, Valerian and Loreline and such. The, that design is, you know, is evident in this film. And, and so you've got that design, you've got that score that sort of sounds a little Pink Floydy, and you think like, oh, this might have been what Jodorowsky's doing would have been like, except live action, of course. The graphic style reminded me a little bit of things like Yellow Submarine and the Monty Python animations that Terry Gilliam directed, that sort of similar cutout, um, yeah. slightly stilted animation, but clearly like hand drawn hand rendered you can see the cross hatching on the shading of the backgrounds and the creatures you could sort of like almost see it's really cliche to say but you could sort of see the artist's fingerprints all over it completely i love that stuff i mean you can see the you can see the pencil strokes in all of the artwork it, it looks like it's done with you know colored pencil and it is really the artwork is beautiful and when that cutout type of animation is done right it's you know, it's done because it's a time and money saving technique but when it's done right it has a really beautiful style in and of itself, you get these like animation loops when the characters are running, but they're just really hypnotic because it literally is just the same, you know, same three drawings like cut out and placed over each other over and over and over again. The style itself was done by an artist named Roland Topor, who had done two short films with Rene Leloup. And then looking into him, he you know had a career as a screenwriter and an actor and a novelist. And he played uh, Renfield in Werner Herzog's Nosferatu, which was I think the only thing I've ever seen him in uh, unknowingly, but that was an interesting piece of trivia. Hello, I'm Helen from Flixwatcher. 
And I'm Kobe, also from Flixwatcher. The Netflix review podcast you go to when you can't find anything to watch on Netflix. That's right. We are another podcast in the strip media family. So if you've struggled to find a film on Netflix, then we're the podcast for you. And we have guests from other podcasts, big and small, and they're the ones that actually choose the films that we then rate and review and talk about in our show. If you'd like to find out more about Flixwatcher or any of the other shows, visit www.strip.media to find out more. You watched it on the big screen and then you came back to rewatch it for this. Was there anything that really stuck out to you on a second watch? Just, uh, you know, watching it again was, I was struck by how simple it was. That, that was the thing. Like I, I wanted to, you know, my memory of it was that it was so grand and so expansive and it is, but also the story is so simple. I was, I was sort of relieved to see that there were no surprises, nothing that I'd really forgotten about. And yet all of those details felt so rich, you know, like the, the little creatures that look like little dust balls that weave, you know, cocoons around the arms to give them clothing, things like that, or that landscape that looks like sort of like corrugated spaghetti that rises and falls. There's just so much beautifully well-designed alien topography that feels well thought out. Again, it just has like, there's, there's a sense of, I hate to use this phrase, but there's a sense of intelligent design behind all of it. And because there is, the artists clearly thought about what they were designing and the world they were building. And it was also fun to watch it. I just rewatched all of the, you know, all five, no, all six alien movies, including the two Prometheus films. Cause they're, that's one of my favorite franchises of all time. So every couple of years, I'll just rewatch all of them. And the, 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 dra- the drags in this movie, their costumes are exactly the same as the engineers in Prometheus. And I have to assume that that was a point of reference. You know, the, they're big, bald, tall aliens with these weird, you know, you know, sort of technical suits on and, you know, Ridley Scott just made them white with black eyes instead of blue with red. So there's, I feel like that was like a really, uh, one of the, one of the clearest signs of influence that this film has may have had is, is they've got the, the prototypes for the engineers in them. The timings check out, you know, you can absolutely see uh, young Ridley Scott checking this out in the early seventies. And then a couple of years later, he's working on Alien. And goes right back to Jodorowsky. He's Dune and Mobius again, you know, like all of those, everything's coming out of sort of that same melting pot that also, of course, led to heavy metal and, and to so many other, other things like that, that, you know, when you watch that wonderful documentary about Jodorowsky's Dune and see all the ways in which it influenced so many things that did come out in and and were actually made, but the bedrock of that film goes back to all these French comics and graphic novels and things that uh, are also evident in, in a film like Fantastic Planet. You're right about the ecosystem. Like, even though this is a it's a fantastic film, you know, it's sci-fi, everything kind of makes sense. There's a hierarchy on the planet. There's, you know, the, the higher being, there's the humans who are, you know, just really big in number, but there's also all the wildlife and the creatures. And I loved that. I loved the Sometimes there's interludes in the film where a creature will eat another creature and you can sort of see how how this ecosystem works. And those little details were really what made the experience so rich for me. It's something that James Cameron did in Avatar. And of course, Avatar has a whole lot more going on. But part of the thing, I, I kind of dream of a movie like Avatar that creates an entire world where it's more like planet Earth. And you're just like watching these ecosystems exist and and function the way we would in a nature documentary on on planet Earth. And and that's that's sort of what I'm working on with my own my own sci-fi film in a way. But it's a, a, a dream of mine to see that. And this film participates in that to a certain degree that really excites me. 
I also love wild, like really crazy details. Like, you know, the guys who duel to the death, you know, tear and his enemy duel to the death with like these weird worms that they strap to their stomachs. And just when you have like a crazy detail like that, like something that you feel like there is a, there's probably like a history to that ritual that you're watching and you understand that this is a time honored tradition that's probably been going on for thousands of years and they came to it somehow. And it's very specific and very uh, rich in its own way. And yet completely absurd and crazy. And, and I love details like that. I love when you, get, when you get to dip into a civilization that has its own specific rituals that are just totally wild and unlike anything that we participate in. And you know, you've got like a wizard who wears an octopus on his head and you're like, that makes total sense. Like, of course he'd put an octopus on his head, but you start to think about how they may have gotten there, how they may have reached that point where that became the symbol of wisdom in that culture. And I just really, really enjoy detail details like that you know our protagonist is a kind of a domesticated om um he grows up and then gets set free into the wild and when he meets the wild oms it's a society which has been going on for you know decades and decades and decades so everything is just absolutely this is how we duel we have these weird worms strapped to our, our, our chest like they're riding a hobby horse or something yeah exactly and it's sort of showing not telling the audience like we're just immersed in it and the film's just full of that stuff by illustrating it to us and showing it to us it shows how well thought out the design for this movie is completely and it really one thing another thing it does is just gives you uh, a perspective on how small we are as a species not just in terms of size in terms of scale because obviously the drags in this film are gigantic but just in terms of the way in which we exist within a time frame and the idea that you know these alms um, have been living on this planet for how many years like hundreds thousands we don't know like probably thousands because they've developed this culture and how you know, in the grand scheme of things, what a microcosmic blip that is. It's sort of that universe in a shoebox kind of thing that, you know, is often deployed in a sci-fi movie or a, a Muppets film occasionally. <laughs> yes, um, exactly. Which is quite fun. <laughs> yeah, I think my favorite example of that is like in The Matrix, realizing that Zion has like risen and fallen countless times over the eons. And just the idea of like, oh yeah, that thousands of years go by in an instant when you are functioning on a level that is not human and humanity just goes through the same makes the same mistakes does yeah, the same things the same has cycles. the same goals <laughs> yes exactly if only we can get to the point where we're meditating our way to uh interplanetary orgies that's the next level of consciousness that we have yet to figure out oui c'est de la poudre à couleur We have a lot of animated films in our under 90 minute film festival animation does sort of lend itself to this this runtime it sounds like you're a really big fan of a lot of the detail in this film do you ever see yourself making an animated film yeah i definitely do i mean sometimes i think about it just in terms of like the budget i'm you know when I'm, like the film the science fiction piece i'm working on right now like i definitely am always like concerned about how to do something cost effectively especially when it's a weird movie and sometimes animation seems like a the right approach because you can just do more. It, it's going to, it's not going to be as expensive as trying to stage something in real life. 
but yeah, I would love to at some point. I love animation. I especially love stop motion animation. That's my particular jam, I guess uh, you could say. And I love when you can literally see the fingerprints because it's a piece of clay. Um, that type of thing is really exciting to me. And I, I'm sure I will at some point. I really love, you know, I, I started off doing stop motion. That was sort of like, you know, before I had a camera, like a video camera, I had a still camera and could do stop motion with that. And so that I was really drawn towards that form, the patience of that form, uh, in spite of being a very impatient person, I really like doing it. And um, I'm sure I'll go back to that at some point. And I love, I love hand-drawing animation too. And, you know, some of the only, only, you know, animated films that exceed 90 minutes are the Miyazaki films. And I know like My Neighbor Totori, which I think you've covered as well, is, is under 90. But then you've got things like, you know, The Wind Rises and Prince Mononoke, which exceed two hours. And, and then my favorite is Nausicaa Valley of the Wind, which right alongside Fantastic Planet is one of the best, like, well thought out taxonomical science fiction films ever made. Just like the sense of scale to the world building that film is, I could just, it's like oxygen to me. And I just love that movie. And I think that one, I think that one's over two hours as well. You're, you're really right, actually. Like when I started doing this podcast, I was like, you know, if no one can think of movies, we'll fill it with early cinema, like Chaplin, Buster Keaton, all of those great silent comedies and animated films. <laughs> Be super yep. easy. But um, but yeah, Ghibli's only made like four under 90 minute films out of their, you know, you know, 35 year plus career. And straight off the bat, they did, you know, really big, long epics. And Nausicaa, is such a good comp for Fantastic Planet. What a great double build that would make. It would be great. I, I would start with Fantastic Planet because it's short and then it kind of like cleanses your palate and then you dig into Nausicaa and it's just like that movie is is something else. I feel it's really underrated. And I mean, it was one of the later movies of his I saw, but I think it might be my favorite. Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away, of course, are untouchable, but I really love Nausicaa. It's on Fantastic Planet. If you had to pick one scene as your favorite scene, where would you where would you go? One scene. I mean, I love the the dual scene just because it's so crazy. Like you're just like out of nowhere. It's so wild. I also really love the scene where it's like a sequence where the alms are fleeing. They're fl- you know they're being exterminated and they're fleeing, uh, and they are you know in- they encounter two drags and manage to take one of them down. And that's just a really, you know, well done sequence and really is, you know, it's got this, you know, Swiftian imagery, you know, so you've got the, the Lilliput, you know, taking down the giant uh, uh, imagery in there. It's so satisfying to see an oppressed people fight back. And, and so I really appreciate that sequence. One of the other things I love about it is that the, the drags aren't bad. Like they just are ignorant. And it's the same thing we see in our world today of like the way we treat animals and, we no one who you know buys a hamburger that was from a cow that was killed at a horrible factory farm is a bad person it's just that we are sort of ignorant on a day-to-day level of the injustices that are being done on that on that scale and and it's just a nice reminder of the way in which we are ignorant of things in our world i do really appreciate the fact that in the, at the beginning of the movie that you see like a degree of compassion between the drags and the arms and you see you see the sense that you know um i forget the name of the our our hero drag who's a raising tear but uh she really like 
is affectionate towards him and is sad when he's gone. But that's just the same way we treat our dogs and cats. We love them dearly and they're an important part of our lives in spite of the fact that their animal brethren are regularly consumed by us. Uh, so you can hear my my vegan philosophies coming through here. But <laughs> that's your interpretation of the film. Yes, I see. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's actually not. I don't. I don't think it's the best metaphor for animal rights, but it definitely it definitely fits in. It's also and that scene with um, I think Tiwa is the the trag name. Um, yes. The sort of the, the infant um, trag at the beginning, and then we see her grow up with her adopted uh, human, her adopted Om, and that just reminded me of childhood, isn't it? You're so into that that pet or that toy when you're really, really small. But as she becomes a teenager, she's kind of less interested in him and, and he gets to escape. Another thing that I, another scene I really love, just because again, it kind of shows the time period in which it was made was when all the alms are like eating that glowing fruit or whatever it is, they all are basically just dropping acid and then going off to make love. And the way they show that is they all start glowing. You just see from these big wide panoramic shots, these little glowing dots of light gradually moving together. And it's just a really, it's really funny because it's so obvious what uh, is going on there. And again, reminds you of the time and place in which this film was made, but also um, it's just a really elegant way to depict that without ever getting too graphic. I mean, this movie has a little bit of nudity in it, but not in a sexual way, but it is a very sexual movie. And they always find ways to get around that in a very elegant and I think, you know, kid-friendly way. I mean, maybe this movie isn't necessarily G-rated, but it certainly isn't G-rated, but it's definitely not graphic, even though it's suggesting, um, you know, it has a very, a very healthy perspective on sexuality. Fantastic Planet is in our 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival. We've talked about seeing it at the cinema already because that is how you got to see it, David. But uh, at our festival, if we could give you a blank check to show this film at any cinema or location you'd like, what would be your dream venue? When I, when I think about that, I try to think about just my favorite place to see movies and like what is my favorite cinema to go to? Like what is like you sort of like return to the same place, like as a comfortable old chair. And that's just like where you feel at home as a moviegoer. And so it's not about like saying something crazy, like let's show it on the moon or let's show it on a, on a different planet. It's more about what is the most comfortable place for me to present this movie. And there is a cinema in Milwaukee, Wisconsin called the Oriental. And I'd want to show it there. And I can't really explain why, other than that that was one of the very first art house cinemas I ever went to. It's a beautiful, ornate old cinema. I believe it's a landmark now, but I can't say for sure. And I've been back to it a few times recently to go when I go to the Milwaukee Film Festival. And I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is why I was introduced to the cinema. And it's just this absolutely gorgeous old movie palace. I saw 2001 there in 70 millimeter for the first time. And I think this movie would play very well there i love it when you know someone's got a, a link to a, a venue they choose for this but it sounds like you could also probably achieve that by approaching the milwaukee film festival and as a, as a festival programmer they'll be like it's 72 minutes of course david let's do it they can squeeze in so many other movies that day it's fantastic as part of you know your commitment as a guest curator at our film festival we've got the cinema in place now which is great if you had to decide on what snacks and drinks would be available for the audience what would you what would you like to go for? Is there something that you personally enjoy having whilst at the cinema or something that might be just be a fun pairing with this movie? I mean, I guess uh, I'm not one that would necessarily partake, but uh, edible uh, 
you know, THC infused cannabis infused items probably would be encouraged by the filmmakers <laughs> at, <laughs> on, on whichever scale it feels appropriate for, for the individual. Uh, I neither, you know, endorse that or, uh, you know, would prohibit anyone from doing that, but that's a, I think, I think that would be appropriate beyond that. I'm just a big, you know, hot coffee and pretty much just coffee. I'll drink a cup of coffee in a movie theater. Some movies I'll get popcorn if it feels like a popcorn movie. But um, but I just like, I think for this one, I mean, it's just too good. It's like if you were to show a Cheech and Chong movie, obviously you'd just go with like weed brownies. And for this one, some sort of psychedelics seems like the right approach. I don't know if I'd go for it, but I, I mean, Gene Siskel definitely didn't think it would help, but I think, you know, it would definitely uh, be the right move to make. I think it'd be a fun experience with the music, especially. I feel like the music might be more influential in that state of mind than maybe the visuals, because the visuals are, they're pretty wild already. It's like watching Yellow Submarine. You don't need anything. And if you could invite someone for a Q&A afterwards, either someone involved in the film or someone you think would get a kick talking about the film, uh, who would you like to hear on stage afterwards? I don't know why, but I, I just was watching and just assuming Darren Aronofsky must be a fan of this movie. And I don't, I, again, I got afterwards, I was like, have I heard him talk about it? I don't know if I have, but for some reason he comes to mind. But I also would just love to to know more about Roland Topper, the, the production designer and artist whose work is, you know, he designed the look of the movie. And he worked with Rene Leclerc on a couple of short films prior to this. Rene Lelou, I'm sorry. Just doing a quick dive into his Wikipedia, his life and career is really, really fascinating. And I just would love to hear more about it and learn more about it and see more of his work. So I think he would be my choice for, a, for you know, to come do a Q&A. Maybe in the, in the foyer of the cinema, we could get some, you know, sketches, production work sort of mounted, have a mini exhibition to go in and kind of prime the audience and let them yeah, mull around afterwards and, and drink sell it in. His, sell his novels uh, in, the, in the lobby and, and then maybe uh, do a screening of movies that he's acted in, like Nosferatu, which I would love to see that movie on the big screen again. I think that this film and the filmmakers are, even though the image was really striking to me when you, you mentioned the name of the film to me and I, I recognized it, I haven't really heard that many people talk about it or revisit it in like retrospectives or, or anything. No, it's, it's, it's surprisingly, yeah, you just don't hear much about it. I mean, I certainly, I can't remember where I first heard about it. I just know I saw that image of the, of the large blue skinned alien with the red eyes, but I don't know. If I heard about it from a filmmaker, maybe I did hear Darren Aronofsky talk about it at some point. He's obviously a big science fiction fan, but I don't know. Uh, I don't know where I first discovered it. And when I saw it was playing at the cinema, you know, it wasn't like I'd been waiting years to see it. It was just like, oh, that image that I've that I'm somehow familiar with. I should go check this out. You know, that's why it caught me by surprise. That's why it was, I think, so revelatory in its way was that just I hadn't really heard much about it. It wasn't, you know an unsung masterpiece that I knew I had to see at some point. It was just a curio and what a wonderful curio, curio it was. I think for any kind of cineast or film fan, this is definitely worth, you know, seeking out and checking off that watch list because like you say, it influences so many things that come after it and it shares so many similarities with Planet of the Apes and that similar story of, you know, an totally, uprising yeah, yeah. And, and humanity being a second class kind of citizen in, in, a, in a futuristic society. Definitely. I mean, I was trying to think, like, is this a hugely influential movie? I don't think it is, but I think it participates. It's part of a culture that influenced a great deal, which, again, is that, you know, the sort of French graphic novel, uh, science fiction graphic novels. Like, But again, like you see that rippling through, especially in, you know, the 60s and 70s where, you know, when, like, when I'm just going to use uh, 
Valerian and Loreline as like the starting point, like 1967, you see that ripple through into Star Wars. You see, and then Star Wars ripples through into everything else. And so you, you, this participates in a movement within science fiction that I think was greatly influential, influential, even if this movie in and of itself wasn't directly influential to, to that many things beyond, I think, the engineers and, and Prometheus. I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to just draw the line in the sand. I think this was a direct influence on those, that design. I don't know if I'm right or not, but I feel like it had to have been because it's so, it's so precisely exactly the same. Well, there you go. Well, thank you so much, David, for talking to us today and for giving us Fantastic Planet. I really look forward to seeing The Green Knight. I guess, you know, for people listening in the future, you'll have a new, your next Disney film, uh, Peter Pan. That would be sometime in 2022. Then uh, maybe this science fiction thing that was indirectly or directly influenced by a fantastic planet will be after that so we'll see we'll see if anyone's crazy enough to finance it or maybe i'll have to make an animated film to get the budget down but we'll see what happens uh, brilliant well thank you so much david and look forward to seeing you soon see you soon thank you thank you for listening please subscribe on apple podcasts or your podcatcher of choice you can also listen on our website, 90minfilmfest.com. That's 90minfilmfest.com. You can contact us there or on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. The show is edited by Louise Owen with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.